everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast, brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and SlayRx. This is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And as you probably know, we tend to like to experiment with new things here on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Uh, This year, we've been experimenting with a lot of different things, releasing our podcasts on different days and different formats, using various interviews, doing our new race reports, all that sort of thing. Even took on a new sponsor, which I'll tell you more about in just a minute. But the thing we're experimenting today is doing a solo podcast that we're putting out on a Tuesday. (laughs) Um, And so I appreciate you being with us here, despite the fact that we deviated from our regular Sunday format. Before we get too into it here, let me go ahead and talk a little bit about that sponsor that I referred to just a second ago. SlayRx, you'll recall, is our newest sponsor. They make custom drinks based on an individual's sweat profile. Uh, They have a lab here in the metro Atlanta area where you can go. They have a climate-controlled room that they can set to both the temperature and the humidity of the race that you are planning to run, whether it's a bike race, whether it's triathlon, whether it's a running race. Um, And they will have you work out for about an hour. They will test not only the amount of sweat that you produce, but also the content of that sweat. And then based upon those findings, they will give you the proper hydration prescription. They have products that are two times, four times, and six times the electrolyte mix based on the content of your sweat. Um, So make sure that you check them out at SlayRx.com. Don't forget, of course, you can use Pleasant 2019 in order to get uh, 10% off anything on their website. Today, we, of course, like I said, are coming out on a Tuesday, and this is actually the first time I've talked to you in two weeks and two days, Um, and I think I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention the reason why we weren't able to be with you last week, and that was because of the death of Bethany Rutledge. Now, I did put it on our Facebook page, and I mentioned that we were taking a week off because we were shocked by the death of this giant of the Atlanta triathlon and Atlanta endurance community. Um, 37 years old, mother of twin boys, two-time Kona qualifier. Uh, Bethany Rutledge laid down to take a nap and didn't wake up. Um, We thought not only would it be wrong for us to, in the midst of that news hitting our community, put out a podcast, Um, but also, frankly, we were just overwhelmingly sad um, and couldn't imagine pulling together the words and and science and advice that we normally offer on this podcast. Um, Bethany has gotten a huge outpouring of love on Facebook, on social media over the course of the past week or so. Um, John, her husband, has two. Um, Her boys, Ethan and Alex, uh, certainly seem to be surrounded by people who care deeply about them and are thinking a lot about their short-term and long-term well-being. Um, Bethany's funeral was this past Friday, um, and there was a a really large turnout for that funeral. Um, And her husband, John, actually made a video um, that had all sorts of photos of her and then featured his voice, the voice of Bethany's mom, and the voice of John's mom, Bethany's mother-in-law. Also at the funeral, Michelle Crossman, a triathlete from Atlanta, spoke. Uh, Tim Myers, a triathlete from Atlanta, spoke. Uh, and Bethany's brother all spoke. Um, and it was very nice. Um, I should say the sense that pervaded a lot of it, though, was sort of a bewilderment. Uh, I think that many of us are just confused and don't know exactly how to feel. Um, and I can say for myself, I have not taken this loss um, quite as gracefully as I may have taken others. 
Um, and the only reason why I mention that is to simply say that if you knew Bethany and you're feeling kind of bitter about this, you're not alone. I want to move on today and talk about two things. Um, two things I've kind of added to the list of stuff to be talked about here on my uh, my solo effort on the podcast today. Uh, the first has to do with heat acclimation and acclimatization. Um, somebody reached out to me um, and posted on Facebook after uh, our last podcast or a few podcasts ago when we talked about how to deal with the heat uh, and was talking about heat acclimation and heat acclimatization. And so I dove into the research on heat acclimation and acclimatization. I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, the second thing is I want to talk about uh, the Tour de France a little bit. Um, and specifically, I wanted to talk about uh, some of the research and, and one of the new products that might be filtering down to, to some of us um, who are cyclists and, and athletes here. Let's actually first start talking a little bit about heat acclimatization, heat acclimation. Um, a lot of people, and I mentioned this, I believe, when I was talking about it uh, just a few weeks ago, tend to do things that I would categorize as an over-application of the principle of specificity. Now, I've talked about this a little bit more on this podcast in the past, but I think in the realm of heat acclimation and acclimatization, it, it bears repeating. I think a lot of times people over-apply the principle of specificity. Uh, the principle of specificity is a bedrock idea in endurance sports, as, as many of you probably know. And basically the idea, it's pretty straightforward. The name suggests it. It's that if you are training for a race, you should train specifically for that race. That the training that you do should specifically prepare you, prepare you for the specific demands of the race. Um, and so the principle of specificity, for example, uh, would suggest that if you're doing a running race, you need to do a lot of running. Um, if that's on a hilly course, you need to do a lot of running up and down hills. Um, if it's a fast race at 5K pace, for example, you need to do some workouts at 5K pace and on and on and on. Um, but like I said, I think sometimes people overapply this idea of specificity. Um, for example, I think triathletes a lot of times, they only ever ride their tri bikes. Um, and I think that's a mistake because I think that, that you can... Uh, have a lot more opportunities to ride in various places and with different people if, in fact, you ride your road bike as well. Um, I think that a lot of people who are training for, say, the Chicago Marathon, which is on a flat course, will justify never going off of flat ground, never finding hills, because they say, well, I'm training for a flat race. Um, and likewise, I think people who are training for, for hot races sometimes say, well, I'm going to do all of my training in the heat because that's the way that my race is going to be. And that's that's an over-application of the principle of specificity, I believe. Um, specificity matters, but if you are doing things solely for the purpose of being specific, or better yet, if you're doing things that are really inadvisable because they're specific to the challenges that you're going to face on race day, um, you might actually be doing a little bit more harm than good. So, um, that being said, um, somebody reached out to us on the Facebook page and said that they had been doing a few choice heat acclimation runs going out in the afternoon uh, from time to time and doing runs over the course of the past several months. And they believe that that gradual approach to heat acclimation and heat acclimatization had actually improved their running overall. And that may well be so. Um, but I figured I would take a look at, at what a lot of the research said on this. Now, I found a lot of research 
on this, but it's important to say at the outset that virtually all of the research that's been done on heat acclimation and heat acclimatization has been done on the military, not on athletes. Um, it's been done because there have been government agencies that have been charged with trying to figure out how is it that we can train our men and women in uniform and then fly them over to wherever it is they're going to be deployed and drop them into a really hot space um, how can we train them to ensure that they're not going to be overwhelmed by the weather in the new space where we're deploying them? Um, and, and, and certainly that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, and that's not to say that the research is not valid, but it is to say that some of the demands that athletes are going to place on their body in the heat is going to be different from the demands that members of the military are going to be placing on their body in the heat. Um, furthermore, athletes have different options around cooling that members of the military do. People in the military have different challenges in terms of equipment and gear that they have to be wearing and carrying with them that athletes don't. And so you want to make sure that you're taking the research that I'm about to share with you um, kind of a little bit with a grain of salt, or at least that you are, are, are considering that you shouldn't necessarily directly download a lot of the things that they've found with research done on the military for your athletic pursuits here. So uh, that being said, first of all, let's say, that, let's say this. Heat acclimatization, heat acclimation. Actually, this very first thing, say this. I actually learned the difference between heat acclimation and heat acclimatization when I was doing this research. Heat acclimation are basically the artificial things that you do in order to help you get accustomed to a climate. So, for example, going into a sauna, that would be considered heat acclimation because you are doing something artificial in order to prepare you for a, a hot weather race later on. Heat acclimatization are the things that you would actually do in the climate where you are going to be racing um, in order to make yourself more accustomed to the demands, the weather demands of that race. And so if, for example, you're getting ready for the Ironman World Championship in Kona, Unless you live in Kona, most of the things that you're going to be doing are going to be acclimation. Now, if you happen to live in a place that, that has a very similar climate to Kona, then you can do some heat acclimatization. Um, but most likely, if you get there early enough, you'll do a lot of acclimation at home, and then you'll do a little bit of acclimatization while you're there. Uh, but anyway, um, the research on heat acclimation and heat acclimatization has shown that there's lots and lots and lots of benefits that you get from actually acclimatizing and acclimating to the heat. You get a lower heart rate. You get a lower core temperature. You get a higher sweat, race a sweat rate during exercise heat stress. Uh, the skin temperatures of people who are heat acclimated or heat acclimatized are often lower. Sweating starts earlier and at a lower core temperature for people who have undergone acclimatization or acclimation. The sweat glands on people who have become accustomed to the heat also become resistant to fatigue so that higher sweat rates can be sustained, particularly in high humidity climates, which I thought was very interesting. In addition, people who have become more accustomed to hot and humid racing conditions are better at matching their thirst to what their body water needs actually are. And so those line up a little bit better. Uh, you also have increased total body water if you're acclimated or acclimatized. You have increased, increased blood volume. Um, and finally, you become a less salty sweater if you become accustomed to the heat through acclimation or acclimatization. So there's a lot of really bona fide 
benefits that you can actually get from undergoing heat acclimation and heat acclimatization. Now, in addition, we should also say there's two types of heat acclimation, acclimatization and acclimation. Uh, they're so-called passive and active. Passive would mean when you go into a sauna and you sit. Uh, and that matters, and that's important, and that's good, and you can acclimate by doing that. Um, active has shown to be a little bit better. Um, however, it's riskier, um, and it takes a little bit longer to actually become more accustomed to it. Active, of course, is when you go into a hot area or you go out on a hot day and you go for a run where you actually exercise in the heat um, as opposed to, to simply sitting in it. But both of them can provide benefits um, over time. In addition, research has shown that you don't have to do super, super high-end heat in order to acclimate or acclimatize to hot conditions. Um, in other words, um, most saunas, I guess, at the gym are like, what, 140, 160 degrees, something like that. Um, if you are in a more temperate climate where it's, say, 75 degrees, there is a degree that ha of heat acclimation and acclimatization that can take place if it's only 75 to 80 degrees. You don't have to go into 140 to 160 in order to, to make that happen. And so that's kind of important to, to keep in mind as well. Now, again, according to this research that's been done on the military, not on athletes, it shows that acclimatization and acclimation takes about 10 days total. Um, and it takes a total of about seven days of exposure or about seven days of actually acclimating or acclimatizing via passive or active acclimatization or acclimation um, to the conditions of the place where you are. Um, and so you need to recover from it a little bit. You need a total of seven days exposure. And in addition, it requires about 90 minutes of acclimation or acclimatization to really reap the full benefits. Once you go beyond 90, it becomes too difficult to recover from it, um, and you're actually not going to get as many benefits. Um, but if you can get up to about 90 minutes worth of acclimatization or acclimation, um, then that can pay some dividends. So again, that's kind of what the research shows, research has been on the military, uh, that's kind of what the research shows is the ideal way to go about it. Over the course of about 10 days, do about seven days worth of exposure um, of about 90 minutes at a time. Now, you might need to work up to that. You probably do need to work up to that, as a matter of fact, if you're coming from a place that is not so warm, um, but, but something to kind of keep in mind. Now, it is specific to the type of heat and the intensity of the exercise, and so if you are training for a 5K in tropical conditions or a ultra marathon in very dry conditions, acclimatization actually is specific to both the type of heat and the intensity of the exercise. So that's something important to keep in mind as well. Um, and it's also important to remember the benefits of heat acclimatization or acclimatization are retained for about a week and then they start to decay a little bit. Uh, about 75% of the acclimation or acclimatization can be lost by about three weeks. 
It's easier to reacclimatize if you've already done it before, and that's the reason why folks who actually come from hot climates are better to acclimatize or, or more easily able to acclimatize than people who don't come from hot climates. Um, and interestingly, I think the fitter that you are, the research shows that the more fitness that you have, the more rapidly you take up heat acclimation or heat acclimatization and the longer that you tend to hold on to it. So the fitter that you are, the more rapidly you take it up and the longer that you hold on to it. So again, I looked at a really wide variety of research here, most of which was done on the military, not on athletes. And, and these are kind of the major things that stood out. Um, now, given all of these things, as I take a step back and consider all of these various things, um, I think that there are some, some broad suggestions that I can make. Um, if you're looking to heat acclimate or heat acclimatize, if you're planning on doing a hot weather race and you're not in a hot environment right now. Um, the first thing, starting about three weeks out is what I would suggest to do. Um, about three weeks out from the time that you want to be acclimated or acclimatized. That will give you enough time to build up to 90 minutes at a time and to get seven days at 90 minutes, right? Um, and so, again, remember, over the course of 10 days, you want to do about seven of those days at 90%. If you start 20 days out, that'll enable you to build up to 90 minutes uh, and be able to hold that for about seven out of 10 days. The second one, and this is an important one, um, is that you should get fit first. You should focus on your training first. Um, and I really feel like there's two big reasons for that. Number one is the one that I said just a minute ago. It actually works better. Acclimatization, acclimation works better on fit people. Your body will take it up better and will hang on to it longer if you're already fit. But secondly, and really more importantly, if you just take a step back from this whole heat acclimation and heat acclimatization thing, fitness is king. The fitter that you are, the better off you're going to be. If you compromise your fitness for the sake of acclimatizing to heat, then you're not going to do as well during your race, even if you are heat acclimated or heat acclimatized, um, because fitness is the most important thing. And so if you think you need to stop your training or change your training three weeks out, and that's going to compromise your fitness, that's probably the wrong choice. Um, you should focus on getting fit first and getting as fit as you possibly can and then start focusing on, on heat acclimation or heat acclimatization. Um, further, you should try and maintain your fitness while you're actually doing a lot of the acclimatization. Now, I think that's important to keep in mind. If your goal is to acclimatize and you say, okay, I'm trying to get... 90 minutes, seven times over the course of the last three weeks that I'm going into my target race here. And that means I'm going to go out in the afternoon. I'm going to gradually build up in the afternoon uh, and I'm going to get those 90 minutes and that's going to help me climatize. Well, you might actually lose a little bit of fitness depending on, on how much fitness you're bringing in and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and so given that, it may actually be better to work out in the morning and then do some passive acclimation or climatization in the afternoon. Um, and so don't forget about passive acclimation and acclimatization as, as an option as well. Um, the next thing I would say, of two more suggestions I have, the next thing I would say would be to make sure that you recover and that you rehydrate. Remember that that you're, you will start sweating earlier and you'll sweat more the more acclimated or acclimatized you actually become. And so you literally will start losing more water as you become more acclimatized. You need to make sure they're hydrating well. Now, 
your salt will become or your sweat will become less salty over time but you do need to make sure that you're do using electrolytes particularly in the first part of this in addition most of us get our water and most of our hydration from meals and so if you're skipping meals and you're trying to crash diet and things like that ahead of your 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 primary race which is a bad idea anyway by the way but um, you definitely don't want to to combine that with heat acclimation or acclimatization because that's kind of a recipe for disaster um, not only is it is it bad from a fueling point of view um, but you're also going to leave yourself pretty dehydrated and pretty under electrolyted um, and so that's obviously something you don't want to do um, make sure that you recover and rehydrate and that you maintain your fitness throughout the last thing that I would suggest um, and, and this ties back to the very first point I made about it and that's the point that that all these studies are done on the military not on athletes is that 90 minutes feels like a lot to me and so I would really suggest that you err on the side of acclimatizing too little um, err on the side of caution here 90 minutes seven times over the course of 10 days feels like a lot of time to go out into the heat to me um, it feels like that could really really wreck a lot of your systems um, and so I, I would very much suggest that you err on the side of caution I'm, I'm reporting to you the research because that's what the research says um, 90 minutes seven times over the course of 10 days build up to that 90 minutes gradually um, but as a coach and as an athlete myself, I feel confident that I would not put that on my athlete schedules and I would not do 90 minutes seven times myself. Um, even though that's what the research says, that research that's done mostly on people in the military, I would not directly download it for my own experience or for the experience of my athletes. So that's heat acclimation um, and, and acclimatization. So by all means, if you have more to add if you've seen other things if you've tried things that work for you if you tried this and it either worked for you or didn't work for you uh, do let us know um, because I, I would certainly like to have an informed conversation about all these various things and as I mentioned I went down a bit of a rabbit hole here uh, when it came to heat acclimation and heat acclimatization recently uh, and so I would look forward to talking to uh, all of you about it a little bit more um, all right let's talk about the Tour de France real quick uh, the Tour de France uh, Egan Bernal won, as many of you have probably seen by now. If you're a cycling fan, I didn't need to offer a spoiler alert there because the tour has been over now for almost three weeks. But um, Egan Bernal, Colombian, won. He was the favorite that I mentioned beforehand. Um, he was probably the biggest favorite, even though there wasn't really one big standout favorite. Most people kind of felt like he was probably the five-star favorite, but he had never really been tested in a three-week grand tour. Um, plus, he's only 22 years old. He was super young, and so most people didn't really feel like um, he could quite say or they could quite say with certainty that, that, that he was the favorite to win. Um, in addition, he was on the same team as last year's winner, and so there was some question as to whether he would have the full support of his team or whether the team would be split between supporting him and supporting Geraint Thomas, who was last year's winner. Well, Egan Bernal ended up winning. He was the favorite. Uh, he's a Colombian. As I mentioned, he's only 22 years old. He's the first ever Latin American winner of the Tour de France. And so kind of an interesting new era that's opening up here in world cycling. And, and that is very exciting. Um, and then as mentioned, he's only 22 years old. Uh, that's extremely young for a Tour de France winner. Um, he's not the youngest Tour de France winner in, of all time, but he's close. Um, and so most people are looking at him now thinking, wow, if he won the Tour de France at age 22, what's going to happen when he's 23, 27, 
31. Um, there are cyclists now continuing to ride at very high levels all the way into their mid to late 30s. Um, and so we might be looking at the uh, the start of a new dynasty here um, with, uh, with Eger and Bernal. In addition, his team, Team Ineos, which used to be known as Team Sky, now has won the last three Tours de France in a row with three different riders. Um, and that means that when they start next year on uh, in July of 2020, next year at the starting line, Team Ineos is going to line up the past three champions in a row of the Tour de France. Um, a nearly unprecedented situation here. Um, who are they going to support? I don't know. <laughs> I guess we'll have to see. Um, that's presuming, of course, that Chris Froome is able to make it back from all those injuries, which which I hope that he will. Um, so, as I mentioned, there was no big favorite there going to the Tour de France. Into that void stepped a French rider who's a brilliant rider named Julian Alaphilippe. Um, and a lot of people who might have heard of Julian Alaphilippe but maybe didn't follow cycling all that closely or maybe were not big fans of his prior to the start of the tour are gigantic Julian Alaphilippe fans now. So uh, Julian Alaphilippe, he's a great cyclist, but he was not really considered to be a grand tour contender. And so in all the conversations about who were the favorites for the Tour de France and who might be able to, to win the Tour de France, his name never really came up. Um, but he took the jersey, the yellow jersey, took the lead of the race very early on. And even though everybody kind of kept saying, well, he's probably going to lose it at the time trial. He didn't lose it during the time trial. Well, he's probably going to lose it as soon as he gets to the mountains. Well, they didn't lose it as soon as they went to the mountains. In fact, he held on to the lead of the race all the way until stage 19 of the Tour de France. Now, this Tour de France only has 21 stages. And so we were basically at the very end of the Tour, and Julian Alaphilippe, who nobody expected to win, was leading the Tour de France. What's more, France hadn't won the Tour de France since 1985, so the country of France was going completely insane with the possibility that this unsung guy, Julian Alaphilippe, might actually win. Um, and he rides with a, what, a great deal of what cycling fans might call panache, or what French riders might call panache, which means that he basically rides very aggressively. Uh, and we talked on this tour, uh, on this podcast before, about how a lot of tour contenders are always thinking about the next day. Julian Alaphilippe didn't always appear to be thinking about the next day. Um, he would ride hard. He would attack. He would ride away from everybody else. He would punch it up a hill and things like that. Almost incredibly not worrying at all about what was going to happen on the next day and how that might actually affect him. Um, and and that really gained him a lot of fans, both inside and outside of France. A lot of people thinking that he was going to be able to hang on until the very end. But he didn't. Uh, come stage 19, a very mountainous stage there, um, Egan Bernal attacked on the second to last mountain of the day. Uh, they were supposed to go over two mountains and finish at the top of the second mountain. He attacked on the second to last mountain, uh, crested over the top of the mountain, more than a minute in front of everybody else, um, was headed down the other side of the mountain with one other person, Simon Yates, who we had talked about before, and word filtered back both to the television commentators and to the riders and the team cars themselves that because there was snow 
and landslides on the road farther down the road in the stage that they were canceling the remainder of stage 19. They were going to completely cut out the final climb of the day and they were going to take the final times based on that second-to-last mountain that Egan Bernal actually led over the top with. Um, and so Egan Bernal ended up taking the yellow jersey that day. He defended it and the, uh, the, the next day, which was also another mountainous day. It was a very short mountainous day. It was also shortened because of the snow. Um, and then uh, the final ceremonial stage into France, he, of course, held on to that day because nobody really loses the yellow jersey in the modern Tour de France on the last day. Um, so... Uh, a lot of people look back at that stage 19 and they really wring their hands about what could have been had the last part of the stage not been canceled, um, had they not shortened the stage, had those landslides not occur. Some folks insist that Geraint Thomas, last year's winner, would have caught up and might have been able to uh, to close up some of that time and might have been able to, uh, to, 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 to win the Tour de France. Um, Geraint Thomas, by the way, ended up finishing second. Last year's champion was second. Um, some people even suggest that Julian Alaphilippe would have been able to catch up. And, and still would have been able to win. Probably not. But like I said, Julian Alaphilippe got lots and lots of fans uh, during the uh, the Tour de France. And so a lot of people really who would have liked to have seen him win insist that had it not been for all the craziness on stage 19 that he might have been able to win. Like I said, probably not. But congrats to Egan Bernal, young winner, uh, a star of the future, a star of now, by the way, and of course, like I said, the, the first Latin American winner of the Tour de France. Now, there's one other thing I did want to talk about when it came to the Tour de France. Um, the Tour de France, because it's the largest and most watched and most well-known uh, cycling race in the world, a lot of companies will debut new products at the Tour de France, and riders will wear those products and use those products, and a lot of times those products will filter down into the age group ranks, which is always kind of interesting to see, and it's always kind of fun to see what it is that, that filters down. Sometimes good things filter down and sometimes not so good things filter down. So I, I think a really good example of this in triathlon um, is from the Ironman World Championships in Kona in 2013. Um, there was a New Zealand athlete, triathlete named Luke McKenzie, who had a really breakthrough race. He ended up finishing second, but he led the race until about 22 miles into it and then was passed by Frederick Van Leerd, a Belgian, um, and Frederick Van Leerd ended up winning the, the World Championship there. But Luke McKenzie was wearing two things that, that we had never really seen a, a whole lot of triathletes wear. Number one, he was wearing a sleeved tri-suit. Um, and most tri-suits still today are sleeveless, but he was wearing a sleeved tri-suit. Um, and that ended up touching off a whole litany of... of new clothing options uh, that people tried out after 2013 to try and get more aerodynamic on the bike, to try and be more cooling on the run and all that sort of thing. Um, so much now that, that, that now in 2019, the rules have actually been changed about whether you can have your shoulders covered during the swim and things like that. And so again, simply his experimenting with new clothes, eventually that filtered all the way down into the age group ranks uh, and it, it ended up creating some rule changes and, and different things. Um, unfortunately, the other thing that he also wore that day that a lot of people have now adopted was a trucker hat. Um, rather, than, rather than wearing a visor, which is sort of the traditional thing that triathletes have worn, um, or a hat that fits a little bit more tightly on your head, he wore a full-blown 
uh, Austin Ketcher, Ashton Ketcher style trucker hat um, that said Go Luke or something like that on it. Um, and that caught on as well. And unfortunately, that's still kind of a big trend inside of triathlon. Uh, trucker hats, in my opinion, look terrible and they're pretty non-functional, but yet uh, folks in triathlon tend to love them. Um, and that harkens back to, to, to Luke McKenzie. Um, in the Tour de France, uh, the most cyclists, most teams now are using disc brakes. Um, and disc brakes have now begun to filter down into a lot of the age group ranks. Um, I noticed that this year, a lot of the cyclists were wearing big sunglasses that covered nearly their entire faces. And so I'm actually concerned that's going to filter down to the age group ranks, but I guess that we'll find out here. Um, vapor flies, one could make the argument that is very much filtered down. Uh, thanks to the Breaking 2 project and Eliud Kipchoge, that's kind of filtered down into the age group ranks as well. But the one that I wanted to talk about um, that I think is interesting, and there's actually some research on um, that got a lot of attention due to the Tour de France itself, is the use of ketones. Um, now, ketones are something that a lot of you might be familiar with if you've looked into alternative diets. Um, for example, if you've looked into so-called the paleo diet or if you looked into high-fat, low-carbohydrate diets, um, those diets are intended to induce what's called ketosis. Um, and and ketosis is, is when your body begins to produce so-called ketones or ketone bodies. Um, and ketone bodies can be used by your body to fuel you. Um, so everybody knows that you're fueled by fat. Everybody knows that you're fueled by carbohydrates. Um, and you can, in fact, be fueled a little bit by protein um, if your body runs out of all those other things. Um, but it's a pretty inefficient process. And so don't go, so, go putting protein in your drink thinking that's what you need to fuel yourself. But, um, but you can also be fueled by ketones. Um, and very recently, and, and now it's gone into the Tour de France here, um, scientists have been able to create a drink that actually has ketones in the drink. Um, and in the past when they created it, it was, it was really kind of an awful experience to try and drink it and that sort of thing. But now, suppose it still tastes pretty bad, but, um, but, but there is a ketone drink. And several of the teams uh, in the Tour de France reported that they were using ketone drinks. Team Ineos reported that they were using ketone drinks, and they had number one and number two on the podium, uh, Egan Bernal and Geraint Thomas. Uh, team Jumbo Visma, who had the third spot with Steven Kreuswick on the podium uh, and who won multiple stages, including the team time trial, also used uh, ketone bodies, drank ketone drinks during the um, during the, the Tour de France. Um, Julian Alaphilippe's team, Quick Step, also used ketone drinks during the Tour de France. And so they got a lot of attention during the Tour de France because it seemed as if the teams that were doing the best um, were teams that had adopted this new nutritional technology and were drinking ketone drinks. And so um, given that and given got a lot of the buzz about it, um, there was some attention that got paid to a recent study by a guy named Peter Hespel. And I want to talk a little bit about that study real quick. Uh, so Peter Hespel is a Belgian sports science researcher, um, and he worked with the de Kunic Quick Step team, uh, Julian Alaphilippe's team, uh, in order to try and determine whether these ketone drinks were worth it. Um, and what they did is they took 18 riders on that team, um, and they sent them to a training camp, a really intense training camp, for three weeks to simulate the load and duration of a competition 
condition like the Tour de France. They gave nine of the subjects ketone body supplements, ketone drinks, and they gave nine others a placebo. Um, and all the participants drank up to three bottles a day. They drank it before the workout, after the workout, and before going to bed. Now, that's important. Three bottles a day they were drinking of this ketone body supplement. And by the third week of the camp, the group that consumed ketones was clearly a lot better off than the group that hadn't consumed ketones. Uh, the group that had consumed ketones on the quick step team here after the, the, the this experiment here, they were able to sustain training load about 15% higher than the placebo group. They had a power output 15% higher in a time trial effort that they did towards the very end. Um, and then they also had a lower reduction in their heart rate. Now, over time, and many of you, if you've done heavy training before, you've probably seen this, if you're carrying fatigue, your heart rate can't get as high. Um, it, it literally is tired, um, and it simply can't get as high. And so if you imagine a, a really grueling three-week event like the Tour de France, um, after three weeks, heart rates aren't able to get as high as they were able to get during the opening stage of the Tour de France because your heart is simply tired from being worked so heavily every single day over the course of three weeks here. Um, but they found with the test that was done by Peter Hespel, um, that by the third week of the camp, the group that consumed ketones, their heart rate max still went down but there, it didn't go down quite as much as the people who hadn't consumed the ketones, which meant that their heart still had more capacity to work. It could still get more oxygen to their muscles, which probably had a lot to do with the fact that they had a power output that was 15% higher in that time trial effort there at the very end. Um, so the belief here, the idea here, um, and, and the theory here is that by drinking these ketone bodies before the stage, after the stage, and before you went to sleep, it basically saved some of the glycogen, some of the, the, the high-end carbohydrate-based race fuel that athletes needed for the Tour de France. It saved it. It spared it such that they were able to call on it later in the race um, both in the later stages of the race and in the tail end of every individual stage on each individual day, um, and thereby they were stronger. Now, again, they're unproven, and we're not sure whether, in fact, it works that way, but the most successful teams in the Tour de France all use these ketone drinks, um, and so there is something to be considered with them. Now, before you go out and buy a whole bunch of ketone drinks— Know this, it costs 30 bucks a bottle, and they were drinking three bottles a day. So that meant that they were spending $90 a day per athlete on the ketone drinks. $90 a day per athlete for eight athletes, that's more than $700 a day just for these one drinks over the course of a three-week race. You're talking about thousands upon thousands of dollars that, that each individual team was spending. Now, on the one hand, you can look at it and say, well, obviously I can't do that, and you can't um, because it's prohibitively expensive. But on the other hand, you can also kind of look at that and say, well, would they spend that much money on it if it wasn't something that, in fact, was making a difference? Would they have spent tens of thousands of dollars on these drinks if they were just experimental, if they weren't convinced that the drinks were, in fact, going to make a difference? 
They certainly, at least anecdotally, seem to have made a difference for the Jumbo Bisma team, for the team Ineos, for Quick Step, and for the other teams that, that, that tended to use them. Um, but it hasn't quite filtered down to the market yet, and at least and it probably won't until at least until that 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 price point comes down a little bit more. But um, we'll see. There were some uh, teams that actually said that they they should ban the ketone drinks because they thought it was unfair that the teams with the bigger budgets were able to to buy them and pay for them, whereas a team with the smaller budgets were not um they were not banned and they probably can't be because how are you going to ban a nutritional supplement as lance armstrong joked on his podcast are you going to ban carbohydrates next obviously that's not something that you can do and so we'll see but ketones and ketone drinks and the use of ketone supplements that's something for us to keep our mind and our eye on here over the course of the next short while I think that wraps us up, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining me for this Tuesday solo effort here. Be sure to reach out to me about your own experiences with heat acclimation and clean, heat acclimatization. And by all means, if you have uh, history with, with some ketone drinks, uh, let us know how those went for you. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. That'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITO Coaching Performance, by Blue Pineapple Travel, and by SlayRx. If you want to reach out to me, you can always find me, George, at itocoaching.com. If you want to reach out to Patrick, it's Patrick at itocoaching.com. Or you can send us a podcast email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast, and we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. If you want to find ITO Coaching and Performance, they're at itocoaching.com, on Twitter at ITO Coaching, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash ITO Coaching and Performance. If you want to find Blue Pineapple Travel for all your travel needs, facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. See all the incredible places where folks are traveling thanks to Blue Pineapple Travel. And, of course, our newest sponsor, SlayRx. You can find them at SlayRx.com, at Facebook.com slash SlayRx, or on Instagram at Instagram.com, here for, the number four, here for SlayRx. Don't forget the discount code as well, Pleasant2019. That'll get you 10% off anything at their website. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.